Welcome to the Minter Dialogue Radio Show number 36. This interview is with Kevin Ryan, entrepreneur, business leader, and angel investor. As CEO, Kevin helped build DoubleClick basically from scratch into a multi-billion dollar business. Kevin has since gone on to invest in a number of winning adventures, and he founded AliCorp Network, which includes three companies, each of which has met with great success, including the hugely popular Business Insider for Business News and Analysis, Mongo Database, and the upscale Gilt Flash Sale e-commerce site. Without surprise, Kevin was named one of the 50 most influential business people by Crane's New York business and was included in Vanity Fair's 2011 new establishment list. In this interview, as ever, Kevin calls it as he sees it and provides non-stop great perspectives and thoughts on building a successful business. This has to be one of my best interviews. Please enjoy. Radio Show, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, and I'm author of the blog, themindset.com. That's T-H-E-M-Y-N-D-S-E-T, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes on the blog for the upcoming interview. So let's cut to the quick. Enjoy the show. So, welcome to the Minter Dialogue Radio Show. Today I have a special guest. Uh, this is uh, Transatlantic Skype, and it Someone who uh, is a, one of the only few people I know who did both Yale and INSEAD, a friend from Long Date, and a, and a massively successful entrepreneur in the form of Kevin Ryan. So, Kevin, can you uh, introduce yourself? Say who you are and what you're up to. Sure. Yeah, my name is Kevin Ryan. I'm the CEO and founder of Guilt Group here in New York. Amongst other things, because you also are, you were founder of DoubleClick and uh, founder of of Mongo and a bunch of other things. So uh, lovely to follow you. Thanks for being on the show, Kevin. So um, first of all, talk tell us about what is Gilt, so that we're fully familiar. So Gilt is a uh, flash sales e-commerce company, a luxury company. Uh, I started it five years ago. Uh, today we do six to seven hundred million dollars in, in gross revenue. We sell every day women's brands, men's, home, kids, travel, local products, gourmet food uh, to millions of consumers, mostly in the United States, but also all over the world and in Japan. So what, would, what exactly would be your mix in, internationally? So the business is mostly domestic. It's about 90% in the U.S., um, or about 80% U.S., 10% Japan, and 10% rest of the world. We have a full separate operation in Japan. But for the rest of the world, we're shipping products to them, uh, and that's only been in existence, the international part, for about nine months, but growing mm-hmm. very quickly. Interesting. So are there, there's a bunch of competition for you. Uh, it's a, a pretty uh, populated space these days. How do you describe Gilt's point of difference? So um, Gilt is the largest uh, flash sales company in the United States. Um, and it's the highest end. So the products we have are slightly different than other people's. It's, uh, it would resemble much more a high-end department store, sort of a, a, a Beaumarchais in Paris or a Harrods in uh, London. Uh, and, and so we have uh, very good quality items, but it's still a flash sale site. So it's, uh, it sales every day at 12 o'clock noon Eastern time. And those sales last 36 hours. And it creates a certain amount of urgency in scarcity, and the result has been uh, millions of dedicated fans, and that's why uh, we're probably the best-known uh, and largest player here. But you're right, there are a lot of competitors. Um, I think there'll be fewer in a few years rather than more. Mm. It's a natural process we see many times, 
that there'll be consolidation after the initial burst of energy in any new space. Yeah. So one of the things I hear from you, of course, is you have the higher up brands. And so what you're playing off, it strikes me from observation from outside, is that you've got, on the one hand, the, the upper scale brands and then the strong discount. And so your ability to capitalize on that gap is where it's at. Yes. And so people really come. Um, to us because uh, e-commerce is easy. They like the aesthetic of the site. That's been very important. The design and UI, um, user interface has uh, been a key part of what we do. But at the end of the day, they want, they're getting merchandise that's generally quite discounted and yet is very good quality. And that's hard to find, uh, hard to duplicate, and uh, has been the secret of our success. Another thing that one will often talk about is the service component. How do you describe guilt service and how do you well, what benchmarks do you use? Yeah, it's important. The service, you know, is in a couple components. One is, obviously, the basic one is the site has to work and has to look good and they feel good about that. The second is that when they order something, it has to arrive, you know, rather quickly uh, and in, in good condition. And that actually doesn't happen, you know, without a lot of work in the, behind the scenes. And the third is when they have an issue or a question, they can call customer support or email and then they get a uh, very responsive time uh, and, and feel good about the quality of the response they got. And so uh, that's the operational aspect of e-commerce sites, which is not easy. Uh, and you only do it by you know, running a factory-like operation behind the, the glamour of a, an interesting looking site. Um, but that's what, that's what you know, keeps people. When I run into customers who are very loyal, they'll say, you know what, I had one problem one day and I called and you did a great job. And so I'm, I'm loyal forever now. Yeah. I, well, it's funny when we talk about e-commerce as such a digital thing, but the hard facts of logistics and that kind of, you know, human service is such a such a critical component for success. It, it, it really is. And it's one of the reasons that e-commerce is probably harder than most businesses. You know, if you if you create a good app, it's a very simple one app on the iPhone and people like it, you do well. We have to do many, many things right for you to have a good experience, starting from the going out and buying at the right quality, getting it in, getting it to you, managing the inventory. We have 800,000 items in a big warehouse that's multiple football fields. Um, so a lot has to happen behind the scenes for this to work. And what, how, how do you gauge this idea of uh, a mixed uh, mixed, uh, yeah, well, a mixed mix? That's to say you have online and uh, boutiques. Is that something you're looking at, or how do you approach the the off offline uh, market? So right now we we don't have much. We don't have our own stores anywhere. We've thought about that. We do occasionally sell items in a physical sample sale that we'll do several times a year, um, and it's mostly to generate new customers. So we'll go to a city like Miami or LA, bring a couple thousand items, and rent out a warehouse, and it's an introduction for many customers to guilt. And a reward for existing guilt customers in that city, they can come in, have a good experience, learn more about what we're doing, maybe try on some things that they wanted to touch before they would buy. And uh, those are very successful for us. But that's a small part of what we do. It's probably 1% or 2%. Mm-hmm. Well, it's about treating your uh, more loyal customers. And, and the yeah. other thing you, you showed me when I was in New York is your, uh, your magazine. Talk, talk us about your magazine you've launched. Yeah, it's um, probably counterintuitive to most people that a very digital company launched a print ma- luxury magazine. It's called Du Jour, uh, and we've, it's, it's, it goes out quarterly. 
it uh, goes to 250,000 people. It's controlled circulation and has very high-end advertisers, the Hermes and Ralph Lauren and David Yermans of the world, um, and a lot of great content. We partnered with Jason Bin, who has launched magazines in the past, and Hudson News. And uh, out of the 250,000 customers who receive it, 100,000 of them are at the top guilt customers. And those people have spent somewhere between probably $5,000 and a million dollars on our website. And it's a very attractive audience to advertisers out there. Everyone wants to reach the young and well-off and digitally savvy audience. Hmm. Well, in terms of growing your business, so you, you've got a, a strong revenue side, but how do you, what are the best ways of going out and finding new customers, lead generation and so on? What do you, what do you use? So, to date, the number one way we've gotten new customers over the years has been our existing customers inviting their friends. So that viral nature is incredibly important. That's number one. Uh, number two is that we would be out there uh, advertising, and so mostly online, very little offline. Um, so it would be keyword advertising and some um, and some display advertising. The third component would be a series of business development deals. So we'll partner with a brand or someone like Virgin Airlines or a car company, and we'll do a special sale of, the, of their product on the site. Mm-hmm. And in return, they would uh, market guilt to their uh, 100,000 members and send out an email. And some people would come in, look at the sale of the product, maybe buy something and become a guilt member. So we get a lot of members through that. So those are the three most important ones. The only fourth I would add is uh, certainly in the United States, we get a lot of press. Uh, so we've been on, <coughs> you know, We've done hundreds of TV shows. Uh, we've been in many articles, and, and people discover us through very positive press coverage as well. And how on earth do you get so much press coverage, Kevin? Is it because everyone knows you? <laughs> well, it's a combination of things. Um, you know, it can, be, it can be, look, events like this, someone will hear about it and think, gosh, I didn't really know guilt. Let me go check it out and sign up and become a customer. Mm-hmm. Um, I do a number of appearances on business TV. Uh, we also show up on a lot of fashion TV. Uh, we make ourselves available and create events with celebrities, and that gets coverage. So we'll have a dinner and uh, have people there. We sponsor fashion shows. So we've done a lot of innovative bu- business things, and that produces a lot of good coverage. Mm. All right. So uh, you guys are getting ramped up for a potential IPO in 2013. One of the things that I'm aware of to working with a number of uh, e-commerce companies is profit. profitability is, is an awfully difficult thing. You know, it seems obvious, or people think it's de- desperately profitable, but uh, I, you know, for most, it's a difficult thing. How do you see gaining profitability and greater profitability for you guys? I know you've had periods of profitability, and it is one of your key points. But how how are you approaching that? So, you know, whenever I, I I've started multiple companies, and you know, I always start by thinking the phase one is I just have to have a good product experience, in fact, a great product experience. Without that, you're nowhere. Once you have that and feel good about it, then you need to get scale. And so it's more important to get big than it is to make money. In fact, you're almost almost inevitably going to lose money for several years while you ramp up your systems operations and customer base. Um, because ultimately, the largest player long-term is generally going to be the most profitable one. Then phase three, which we've been in for probably the last year, is you start to focus a little bit more on profitability than growth, and you spend a little more time I'm getting better at what you do. And those are things behind the scenes, whether it's minimizing the cost of packaging, ordering smarter so that you have less wastage, 
uh, you know, just getting more efficient and collecting money, all those things, uh, um, and getting to profitability. So I've been quite determined to get to profitability on our five-year anniversary, which is a mo- uh, two months from now. Mm-hmm. Most e-commerce companies in particular have not done that. Uh, Amazon was not profitable at that point, and uh, it was, I don't think, overstocked. Um, so it's not an easy thing to do because uh, e-commerce margins are relatively low. Um, but but uh, we're going to get there next quarter, and uh, I feel I feel good about that. Do you have, um, so that's step number two, and then you just want to build from there and build a big big profitable business. Do you have any idea what is a, a standard e-commerce profit line? Yeah, it's remarkably low. I mean, let's start with retail. As you know, the average retail profit margin um, across all companies is in the single digits. People are lucky. You know, Walmart is at three percent or four percent. Amazon last year wasn't more than 1%. Um, you know, I think in the flash sale space, we can do better than that. So not next year, but the year after that, you know, I think there's probably a chance that we can get into the 5 to 10%. But it'd probably be hard to do much better than that. And what about going into your own lines? So we do have uh, private label lines um, right now. So we've uh, started that about nine months ago. And that's becoming a significant part of the business. Um, so no different than a department store would do. If you walked into a Macy's or a Bloomingdale's, they would often know that there's some basic products that you you want to buy, and they know the price point, and so they can produce it themselves. And so we started doing that. And that's yet another way of more growth and more profitability over time. So when you look at the history of Gilt, as I have tried to observe from afar, you've, um, you've made some acquisitions, you've made a lot of brand extensions, and recently you pulled back on Park & Bond the men's line or mm-hmm. it seemed to be what are what are you what's your view on acquisition versus brand extension so in general i have not found it to be an attractive uh, area to buy companies in the last couple of years we have done a couple very small acquisitions it has not been fundamental to what we've done i do think in the next couple of years there'll be more consolidation um i found in the last couple of years that you know, companies just have very high value expectations, and these are companies that are not the leader. They're not going to be able to go public, and so I'd rather just wait and see. And the gap between in the internet space between the largest player and the next biggest player often gets bigger over time. Um, so I think time is on my side there. But I do think that over the next couple of years, we'll probably make some acquisitions and some relatively big ones uh, uh, over time, and that'll be that'll be worth it. To date, it was more efficient for me to just launch a new vertical like the home space, where all I have to do is hire 10 or 20 people, and two years later I have a business that's doing $50 million in revenue. You, know, that's, you can't buy a company like that. You've got to build it out from scratch. Mm-hmm. And you can benefit from back office synergies and, and yep. uh, you know, buying power against uh, Google and Facebook and so on like that, which helps as well, right? Absolutely, because you're, yeah, I don't need a new warehouse, um, you know, whereas if you're starting from scratch, you would, and, and now I have a very low cost infrastructure, which is important. Yeah, well, I mean, in the end of the day, you're a specialized distribution. Uh, so you, you're operating with the same kind of, you know, as you say, with Walmart, retail, and that's all about volume. And the bigger you are, then you're able to squeeze or at least get better prices with your suppliers. Uh, yep. you scale so you can improve your overall cost structure, and then uh, hopefully you continue to get a better line. But the whole deal seems to be predicated on just getting more volume. Absolutely. This is a, you know, this internet retail businesses are more scalable uh, because if this were a physical store, we'd have to keep opening new stores in, in many places. And here we don't have to do that. Um, it's the same amount of cost for us to do one sale 
that sells a hundred thousand versus a sale that does a million dollars, and that's the beauty of this business. It changes when you go overseas, though, because then you're back to building a business from not from scratch, but you've got a whole lot more overhead to put in. And that's one of the reasons that, despite having a very international background myself, I have not been as aggressive internationally uh, because of that. Because if you don't have the economies of scale, which is why you see different retailers in London than you do in Paris, than you do in New York, than you do in uh, Moscow. Hmm. So, I mean, thinking about competitors, how do you uh, see Amazon going through? I mean, is there anyone going to be able to come and, and give them a run for their money? No, I don't think anyone's going to give them a true run for their money in terms of what they do. You know, what they do is different because, you know, if you're looking for a store that has everything, um, Amazon's good for that. Many people have different shopping needs, which is, you know, I, I need to buy a white shirt, but if you show me 10,000 white shirts, it's not helpful. It's my, you know, show me three or four, you know, a great store. You don't, most stores you go to, you don't want them to have, you know, 100,000 types of cheese. That's just not good. Unless um, you're French. <laughs> Yes, yes. Uh, you want a manageable number that you can look through that is well-selected. And that's, that, those instincts for retailers that have been around for 200 years apply online as well. And so that's what we're bringing to the table, and uh, customers seem to like it. Um, so in your experience with um, going into the men's market, so with Park and Bond as well as what you have on Gilt, how do you describe the difference between how men are versus women in, in, as customers? So, first of all, there's a... Comp- of men that are that are similar to women, but that section is much smaller. So, and this is somewhat of a stereotype, but you know, a higher percentage of women are really dedicated shoppers. So they are looking; they shop more often. They are looking for things to buy at any time. They're always open to one more pair of shoes, one more dress. Um, like greater variety, like greater change. Don't want to be wearing the same things as they were six months ago or a year a year ago. And men are more conservative. So there's a good percentage of men that want the same suit they had last time and want the same haircut they had last time um, and don't want to change as much. Uh, so there, um, for example, we do more sales that are by category for men's suits. They just want a suit and they're not obsessed with the brand. Women's, we have more brand sales. There's a certain group that wants Zach Posen or they want Valentino. Um, and so we alter it slightly. Uh, but in general, the women's business is a bigger business, um, but our share of market in men's is higher. Hmm. And uh, when you talk about, um, you talked about emails earlier, what about your email strategy? How's that going? So email is fundamental to this business. Uh, as you know, you know, we are sending an email to our consumers almost every day, telling them what sales are coming up starting at noon. And that's a crucial part in, of our communication, and it drives about 50% of all revenues. Um, what we do that's, I think, quite interesting is that uh, the email we send out, there are 2,000 different versions every day based on what people have purchased in the past, what they're interested in. And so that, has, uh, that personalization has really improved the return on our emails and makes a better customer experience as well. So you've got a, a, I mean, a more sophisticated CRM program where you're, you're changing the, the content of each mail to the person so it feels more and more personalized. Yeah, and that will continue to get better, but right now I would guess that we have one of the more personalized and sophisticated email programs in existence. And you know, my previous company, DoubleClick, was the company that started and popularized really you know, targeted ad serving. We're you know, individually serving 20 billion ads a day mm-hmm. all over the world, um, and so I wanted to use some of that thought process and knowledge and apply it to e-commerce. 
there there are two jobs that I, I I'm in my filter listening to you that seem uh, to be radically important um, that are part of the old fashioned marketing or at least part of the old business and I mean there are many more but the two that stand out for me this notion of the buyer so if you're the Bon Marché mm -hmm. or um, Barney's or Harrods you've got you know exceptional buyers. And then on the the second one is with emails being so important, the the ability to have a great scribe, a great um, copywriter. How do you react to that? So uh, on the the first one on buyers, it's absolutely true. And so we have, you know, probably thirty people we've hired from department stores uh, because only department stores are used to buying from twenty brands or thirty, forty brands. You know, if you work for a Valentino, you, you, you didn't do that. Um, so that buying talent is very, very important. And I've heard many uh, uh, vendors tell us that they feel like we have the best buyers in the industry. Um, the second point on emails is a little bit less about the copy than it is about the technology. Um, because when you're selling Valentino, you know, most customers know Valentino or have an idea of Valentino. Mm -hmm. So what you write about Valentino doesn't make the difference. It's making sure that that Valentino sale shows up to the right person versus someone else. Mm, beautiful. All right. So um, I, you have a strong presence on good old Facebook, um, and you've been doing some things that are particular onto the Facebook community. How do you describe your social media strategy? So uh, we, we've been doing a number of different things, and different things work in different places. I would say that Facebook is is definitely a place where we uh, you know we want people to be able to. Uh, put up customer support complaints. So we have full-time people in support who only monitor social networking. So if a customer goes on Twitter and says, I bought a dress on Guilt and I love it, they respond to that and say, that's great, you know, good choice. Or if it's a problem, they're on that problem right away. Um, that's important. Um, Jet Setter, our travels section, is probably the number one player on Pinterest. You know, it has something like a million or two million followers on Pinterest of people posting these beautiful travel pictures. So that's starting to become more important. Facebook to date has not been as significant in actually selling goods. So you don't see many brands, including ourselves, who are saying, well, we're selling goods directly on Facebook. Um, it's more a place where you find other people who like your brand, who engage with it, and, uh, and hear about it from their friends. Mm. When um, we talk about targeting i'm going to get to that in one more second uh do you have particular attention do you pay particular attention to specific digital people as in your know, bloggers or people with quote-unquote influence so <clears throat> in each area we we do pay attention to the top kids bloggers for our kids business and that's those are very important and you know all the entire press world now is really driven by bloggers. So even though someone would say, no, no, the reporter at the New York Times uh, or Business Week is more important, the reality is that that reporter, if they cover, let's say, men's fashion, wakes up every day, and you know what they do? They read the top 10 male bloggers, and then they get ideas about what they should write about. So when you want to have an idea or we are doing something interesting, we go to the bloggers first to make sure that they're on board, they're excited, they're talking about it, they're real tastemakers and, and influencers, and they move it upstream to more traditional media over time, and the traditional media has more reach. Hmm. 
Do you pay any particular attention uh, as a group to the influence uh, scoring systems, Clout, Cred, Peer Index? We did a business development deal with Clout, uh, so uh, so that they you know went out to their members and drove people to guilt, and they got some bonus points if they had a high Clout score. Um, but day to day, that's not as important for us, Phil. All right. And uh, Kevin, just a couple of last questions then. What, what is uh, in line for Kevin Ryan in 2013? What's on your horizon making you excited? So the things that I, look, I, I have three companies. So we've been talking mostly about guilt, but I also have an online business publication called businessinsider.com, which now has 20 million uniques. It's one of the leading business publications uh, in the world, up with the Wall Street Journal and Business Week, or Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg. Forbes. So we have about 100 employees there. I spend time there, and I'm spending more and more time on Tengen, uh, MongoDB, which is a company we started five years ago. It has about 200 employees used by probably 30,000 companies around the world as their core database. So uh, I'm not starting anything new. I don't go on any outside boards, any corporate boards. So I really want to build these companies up. At some point, I think uh, Gilt probably goes public. I think a year or two after that, uh, 10 gen MongoDB might go public. And then I just want to keep building up Business Insider to the goal would be to be the number one business publication in the world. It's and I think we're on track to do that. Well, that's fantastic. And how, how much of your audience is outside of the States with Business Insider? So Business Insider is much bigger. That's now creeping above 20%. So it's in the 20 to 25%. So, for example, there are more people on Business Insider from outside the United States than there are reading most you know, non-U.S. publications. And do you have any uh, intentions of going into multilingual? You know, at some point we may. Uh, um, we're still not convinced that the market's big enough for us to do that yet. Um, so that's multilingual is probably not, it's really not this year. It might be sometime next year. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll be certain to put that in the show notes, of course. And uh, so just tell us a little bit more about Mongo, because this is actually quite a fascinating area. I mean, in the end of the day, as I understand it, it's the... I know it's in the nexus of big data. Yeah. What it is is it's, uh, uh, it's the actual database. It's the core database. It competes with uh, MySQL uh, very much and then a bunch of other startup databases around the world. Um, and so it's used uh, uh, by, by thousands, tens of thousands of companies. We developed it about four or five years ago, and it is just growing like crazy right now. So uh, it's open source. It's a non-relational database, and it's used to store traffic, for customer information, um, the, the, I think I was telling you the Higgs boson particle in Switzerland was all they use MongoDB as their database. Uh, as do you know the Wall Street Journal and eBay and AOL and uh, many many of the largest companies. As well as I would guess probably forty to fifty percent of startups in New York in the last year have uh, been starting up using Mongo. So it's something that I think is going to grow for a long time. The, the model for us is more um, a Red Hat which is an open-source uh, operating system company for Linux, and that's now a company worth $11 billion in market cap. Um, so that, that would be our goal over time. <laughs> Good potential. So it's funny. On the one hand, it's, it's capable of handling huge volumes of data, uh, a la Higgs and Boson, or uh, you know, anything that's really complex. On the other hand, you've got startups that are using it. Well, how do you explain both of those? Yeah, it's a really easy thing to use. So in the beginning, we focused mostly on the smaller market because they're the ones that are going to care about open source, care about being free, 
and care about ease of use. Then we started to develop the product even further because enterprises started using it and calling us up and saying, look, can we use it here? And um, it also works there and it scales really quickly. Really what it boils down to is that most databases, like MySQL, were really created and invented uh, you know, 10 to 15 years ago. And the reality is that uh, it was a different data environment and different level of quality, different needs. And if you started today, which is our thought process, you wouldn't have done it that way. And uh, that's what we were able to do. And that's what makes technology so interesting is that uh, over time, no product is probably the right product 15 years from now um, unless you really change and adapt it along the way. All right. So my last question for you then, Kevin. Um, jet Setter. Uh, I love the idea. love the name. <laughs> Uh, com- you know, setting out to uh, take over Airbnb. How do you how do you think that you're going to manage that? So that one, I'd say it's a little bit different. It overlaps with the Airbnb, but it's not really the same market. This is more people who are renting hotels. I mean, who are using hotels. They want to go for a weekend in uh, whatever in, in Capri, in uh, in Miami, Monaco, in LA, somewhere, or a week, and they want to get uh, hotels they trust. And they want to get a great rate, and so that's why they use us. Um, and that's been uh, that's been an extraordinarily successful business. So, you know, we have hundreds of thousands of uh, customers. It's only a couple years old, and we're probably the leading provider of luxury booking now uh, at a discount in, in, the, in the world. Um, so, feel good about that. Oh, wow. um, you got you got a couple of converts over here in Paris, um, yeah. Kevin. So, thanks a million for coming on to the show. Uh, how can anyone uh, follow you, uh, contact you, or what other sites would you like to uh, have your the listeners uh, go on to? So, uh, from a contact point of view, I'm I'm reachable at uh, Kevin at guilt uh, dot com, my email address. And otherwise, I don't tweet a lot, but I'm the uh, certified Kevin Ryan uh, on Twitter. Uh, and so, those are the, those are the best ways. Uh, to reach me. And uh, yeah, the sites that I'm actually spending more time on uh, recently um, are not necessarily new ones, but they have to do with our, our election coming up, which is very exciting. So Politico, uh, I'm looking at uh, Talking Points Memo. Uh, I'm looking at the, the there's, there's a Princeton site that, that follows the election in excruciating detail, uh, which is a lot of polling data. Uh, so I'm a big, well-known Obama supporter. Uh, and I'm pretty feeling pretty happy with the way things are going. Here, here. And I'm hoping that the social media will keep its uh, good position behind him. I think he's a community ma- you know, rallier, and he's got uh, – anyway, I'm glad to hear it too, Kevin. All right, well, uh, beautiful. I'm going to uh, thank you very much, Kevin, for joining us and uh, wish you well in your merry way. I'm looking forward to staying in touch and uh, see you soon, of course. Great. All right. Thank you. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue radio show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com, T-H-E-M-Y-N-D-S-E-T, where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter. If you like the show, please don't forget to click the handy Facebook like button or tweet it out. And if you speak French, you can find my other French language interviews on minterdial.fr. In the meantime, please come join the conversation at The Mindset or catch me on Twitter at M-D-I-A-L. Happy trails.
how much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transform, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.